0: Hey, For the Record, the 70s listeners, you are listening to part one of the two-part episode on American Top 40. This part covers the 70s. Part two, discussing the 80s, will be available on For the Record, the 80s in September 2022. Welcome to For The Record The 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. This is Amy, your host for this one-woman, one-mic show. On today's episode, we will keep our feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars as we examine the weekly radio show that highlighted the Billboard Top 40 throughout the 70s and 80s, American Top 40, and of course the iconic host, Casey Kasem. But first, thank you for giving the show a try. If this is your first time hitting play, we appreciate having you and the FTR70 community. Of course, thank you to the returning and long time. You know, it is almost the fifth anniversary. I think I can say long time now, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sharing your favorite episodes with others. And thank you for the nice notes that you email and send via Instagram. Also, of course, thank you for your financial support. You can be a patron of FTR70 and the companion podcast for the Record the 80s for as little as $1 a month. Just go to FTR70.com, click on the Be a Patron link at the top of the page, and your contribution helps keep ads about underwear and mattresses away.
1: American American Top 40 is heard coast-to-coast and around the world every week on great radio stations like Radio Kanto, Yokohama, Japan, WCIL, Carbondale, Illinois, and KWHK, Hutchinson, Kansas. At number 22, this is the first big hit record for Boz Skaggs. It's called Lowdown. I suspect for some of you
0: that brings back some memories, right? Just hearing that intro... And if it does, you also recognize Lowdown by Boz Skacks, which was making its way up the Billboard pop chart in late summer 1976. If you do not have any idea what I am talking about, you are in the right place. If there was a way to make following the record sales reported on the Billboard Hot 100 a friendly competition, Casey Kasem did it. With American Top 40, Casey made us believe that nothing was more important over the three and then later four hours that his show was on the air every week, than how many notches our favorite songs climbed or fell. The number one song in the land, as he was known to say, was introduced with a drum roll for crying out loud. We rooted for our favorite songs and we rolled our eyes when our not-so-favorite songs kept a hold of the number one spot for too long, Looking at You, You Light Up My Life by Debbie Boone. Kasem, along with Don Bustani, Tom Rounds, and Ron Jacobs, used Billboard magazine as their source for this national radio show that counted down the top 40 hits in the United States. They vowed that they would play each and every song, regardless of genre, in order for every episode. Then they recorded and shipped that episode to affiliates. This would not always sit well with all the affiliates. More on that in a minute. Kasem was a DJ and kind of a B-grade actor. If you have never listened to American Top 40, chances are still quite high that you have heard his voice anyway, especially if you ever watched Scooby-Doo. Casey was the voice of Shaggy. Over time, he had a kind of slightly, what, hip dad vibe, but at first, he sounded like he was a DJ on an FM underground radio station. And he admits that he was trying to not sound, quote, too bubblegum, because a show that is highly dependent on pop music was just not considered cool in 1970. Rock and roll was king, and Top 40 evoked images of sugary sweet pop or maybe some country-ish soft rock. Rock was king, and it had bred a slew of journalists and critics that wrote. Very serious articles about a genre of music that they believed we should all take very seriously. But again, with the advantage of hindsight, we can see that American Top Forty of the seventies featured rock and pop and country and country-ish and soul and R and and even some instrumentals were in there. It was many things. Still, it seemed risky. 1970 was the era of the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and The Who. In Top 40, that was what your mom listened to on the radio in the kitchen while she was frying up your eggs and bacon in the morning. So why did it work? Certainly the fact that it was not as easy to find your favorite songs just wherever you wanted them in the 70s and 80s was part of that. If you did not own the song on vinyl or cassette or 8-track, You had to wait for it to come on the radio. If it wasn't happening soon enough, then you called the radio station and you made a request. So you were excited to hear your favorite songs. It was fun to know that your favorites were other people's favorites too. But really, I think the main reason that the show endured was Casey Kasem himself. He was never mean. He was never snarky. He was sincere. And by the time we get to the disco era of the mid to late 70s, he was upbeat, like the music. He kept us interested with these little bits of trivia, giving us just a bit of a teaser before the commercial break. Example. In the Apple TV series, 1971, the year that music changed everything, the opening sequence of episode one is this city scene circa 71. Then we hear a voice, and it's Casey Kasem. And he says... Elvis Presley and this next singer are the only two solo acts to have 12 top 10 records in the past 10 years. And those little bits of trivia were what kept us not just coming back from the commercial breaks, but they kept us coming back week after week. The inspiration for that part of the show was a Who's Who in Pop Music 1962, this book that Casey found in the trash at the radio station in San Francisco where he worked. This was a fortuitous discovery because the station manager had asked him to start talking more about the musicians of the records he was playing and doing less comedy, which apparently was not too funny. So American top 40 trivia was born, even though he didn't quite know it yet. So do you know who Casey was talking about? Who was the other solo act to have 12 top 10 records in the previous 10 years? It was Marvin Gaye, and Marvin Gaye also had the distinction of having the very first song ever played on American Top 40, at number 40, of course, the week ending July 4th, 1970. It was one of his more kind of minor hits, End of Our Road, from the 1969 album, MPG. When American Top 40 debuted, it was on seven stations. The show was recorded in a small Southern California studio with some of that furniture in there, by the way, made by a local carpenter who is trying to make it into acting Harrison Ford. How's that for some trivia for you? In that inaugural episode, both the Beatles and Elvis had songs in the top 10. Elvis had The Wonder of You and Mama Like the Roses at number nine. The Beatles were at number four with The Long and Winding Road and For You Blue. But there is something kind of perfect about Three Dog Night, having the honor of having the very first number one song on American Top 40. This band was an early hit machine. Ten top ten singles between 1968 and 1973, like Old Fashioned Love Song, Never Been to Spain, including three number ones, Black and White in 1972, Joy to the World in 1971, and their very first number one, also the very first number one on American Top 40, Mama Told Me Not To Come. The band is also notable for making hits out of songs for some notable songwriters, like Paul Williams. He wrote Old Fashioned Love Song, and Laura Nero wrote Eli's Coming, and Randy Newman wrote Mama Told Me Not To Come. Now, Gen Xers may have first encountered Randy Newman via his 1977 hit, Short People, which he wrote and recorded. The children of Gen Xers came to know Randy Newman because he wrote the scores for the Toy Story movies and he also sang You Got a Friend in Me. He was 26 when American Top 40 began and he had been working as a songwriter for almost 10 years by then. In an interview in 1971 he said he didn't really like how Three Dog Night sang his song until the royalty checks started rolling in. He had recorded the song himself a couple of years after Eric Burden of The Animals included it on his solo album, Eric Is Here. But when Newman recorded it, he sang it a bit earnestly. It is about a straight-laced guy who ends up at a wild party, and he sings it like that.
1: We have whiskey if you want em sugar with your tea what are these crazy questions that they're asking me this is the wildest party that they ever could be What well, don't turn on the like because I don't want to see mama told me not to come mama told me not to come mama said it ain't a way to have fun
0: Okay, so that's Randy Newman singing his version of the song he wrote, Mama Told Me Not to Come. One thing that's a bit unusual about Three Dog Night is that they had three lead singers. One of them, Corey Wells, had to convince his bandmates that this song that you just heard was a potential hit. The way they sang it, it's a bit funky, I think, made it sure seem like our song's character was not the least bit upset that he had walked into this party. Dave Everly, writing for the website Louder, put it like this: If Newman's original had its back pressed against the wall, nervously looking for the exit, Three Dog Night's version had its pants around its ankles and was one toke away from diving headfirst into the punch bowl. Let's listen to the difference. Uh. Wells singing lead for Three Dog Night on the first of three number one singles for the band, Mama Told Me Not to Come. He told Ben Fong Torres of Rolling Stone in 1972 that his favorite singers were Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, and Al Green. You can hear that. You can hear the 60s RB influence in this song. The fact that the very first song played on American Top 40 was a kind of obscure song by Marvin Gaye underscored the idea that this was to be a national radio show. And you might hear songs that were popular in other areas that were not so popular in your town. You heard the Casey's coast-to-coast jingle after commercial breaks, and many times he would list the affiliates. Of course, if you heard your station's call letters, that was very exciting. Remember, as I have said many times, this is an era when radio was still regional. You heard different playlists in different cities. Now, this was going to present some problems in certain cities and at certain affiliated stations. Billboard magazine's sales data came from the record sales in about 100 cities in the United States. What you might be hearing on the radio in New York City is likely to be different than what you were hearing in, say, Buffalo, New York, or Boise, Idaho, or Houston, Texas. In 1973, some program directors at some radio stations had some complaints about the first hour of the show in particular, because that is where you tended to hear more R&B songs. And you might see like three or four in a row, or maybe five out of 10. Some stations did not like that. They said, this is not what their audience wanted. And say, for example, we are a rock and roll station, not an R&B station. Here is part of the memo that Tom Rounds sent in response to a letter from J.J. Jordan, the program director at a radio station in Buffalo, New York, WGRQ. This memo is dated October 5th, 1973. Rounds agrees that there is a, quote, problem with the music balance that usually shows up in hour one of the show, and the problem centers on, quote, high clusters of R&B material, end quote, that may or may not become a top 40 hit, may or may not become an R&B hit, uh, or may or may not be a hit at all, or maybe it'll become just an R&B hit. Rounds goes on to say, and I quote again, Billboard is actually coming up with records in the top 40 that are so new, they haven't broken in some markets. For this reason, we are super reluctant to make a judgment ourselves as to whether a particular record does or doesn't belong in the top 40. He goes on to say, Who knew, for example, that the Funky Worm would become a pop hit? Snap judgments can get all of us in trouble. As many times as not, a record that crept into the number 38 position and looked like the all-time stiff has turned out to be a giant. Whereas quite a few sure shots have fizzled in the high 20s. American Top 40 has many uses, and perhaps one of them is the fact that it doesn't, it does give quite a few records, another chance, on a national basis. End quote." Yes, that is part of the beauty of a national countdown show in the '70s and in the early '80s. Personally, I do not see the problem. It's once a week, and if you have to play four or five songs once a week that you normally would not play, so what? American Top 40 was not going to eliminate any songs, although they did shorten some as singles became more and more lengthy. uh, For many years, it was tradition that it was no longer than three minutes. If it was longer than that, it wasn't going to be on the radio. That time frame begins to expand in the mid to late 70s. That will eventually lead to adding a fourth hour to the show. American Top 40 also edited... Uh, offensive things like they edited the word shit out of Bob Dylan's George Jackson and they issued a warning, a warning about the word crap in Paul Simon's Kodachrome. Affiliates could edit out songs if they wanted to, but American Top 40 was not going to do that. Some affiliates, for example, would not play My Dingling by Chuck Berry because of, well, his reference to his dingling. Just to give you an idea of the so-called problem, I examined some of the top 40 charts in 1973, as one does. Here's a sample from the week ending May 19, 1973. I'm looking at numbers 40 through 30. Out of 40 through 30, six of the 11 were songs that would have been classified as soul or R&B. And then there is a block of five out of six. In that block, we will see there will be two pop hits. Here's what we're talking about. So at number 40 is Masterpiece by The Temptations. That's not really going to go anywhere, at least not on the pop charts. At number 36, I Can Understand It by The New Birth. Again, not going anywhere on the pop charts. Number 35, One-of-A-Kind Love Affair by The Spinners. That one is going to number 11 in the top 40 and number one, R&B. Number 33, Superfly Meets Shaft by John and Ernest. Okay, I got to stop here for a minute and talk about Superfly Meets Shaft. These are two badass movie characters in the exploitation genre, and both of those movies have classic soul soundtracks. Ron O'Neill played Superfly, Young Blood Priest, in a pair of Superfly movies in 1972 and 1973. Superfly is a cocaine dealer who wants to quit the business. The soundtrack was written and produced by Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Curtis Mayfield. Richard Roundtree was a private detective named John Shaft. The first Shaft movie was released in 1971. And Isaac Hayes became the first African-American to win an Oscar for Best Song, and he won that for the theme to Shaft. I have talked about both of these soundtracks, by the way, in episode 16 of this very podcast. In 1973, jean Free and Ernest Smith, recording as John and Ernest, released a novelty song about these two very popular movie characters, Superfly Meat Shaft, There were a few novelty songs that became hits in the 70s. This was not one of them, at least not a pop hit nationally. It got no higher than number 31 on the Billboard Hot 100. The thing about it is, though, the songs that are sampled to make this mashup were very popular. Let's listen.
1: We interrupt this record to bring you a special bulletin. Superfly is missing. Good God! We now take you to our on-the-spot reporter. I have several witnesses here with me. Sir, when was the last time you saw Superfly? It was the 3rd of September. And you, sir, can you describe the suit Superfly was wearing? Red, yellow, black, white, and brown. And you, sir, who was the last person Superfly was seen with? Mrs. Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones. If we need you for any further information, can we call you? Whenever you call me, I'll be there. We take you now to Washington. Who remembers
0: Mr. Jaws in 1975? That song was produced by Dickie Goodman, as was this one, Superfly meets Shaft. Even though it got no higher than number 31 on the Billboard Hot 100, it was popular in some regional markets. For example, I see here it was number 9 on the list of top 10 hits at the Music Shop in Murfreesboro, Tennessee in April 1973. Um, Also in the top 10 in Moline, Illinois in June. Again, while some might see this as a problem, I would also make the argument that this is part of the beauty of a national radio show. You get a sense of what is popular in other markets. Program directors might not have liked it, but I suspect that some fans did. So to use Casey's terminology, two notches above that was armed and extremely dangerous by First Choice. This is a female trio. It's a good song, very much in the Philly sound vein, and it made it to number 11 on the R&B chart, but not a pop hit. Now, remember what Round said about disregarding some songs that eventually become big hits. The song at number 30 is going to go all the way to number one. The nickname Fifth Beatle was given to a few people. Producer George Martin, uh, the guy who was the drummer before Ringo, Pete Best, the manager, Brian Epstein. But the only other musician that got credited on a record label with the Beatles was Billy Preston. Preston played the keyboards for the Let It Be sessions in 1969. Preston's manager, Joyce Moore, said, There were a bunch of parts sitting around. There was George, there was John, there was Paul, and there was Ringo. And then all of a sudden, Billy comes in the room, and he sprinkled the glue and the glitter, and it all just felt good. Preston was not some sort of flash in the pan. He also played with the Beatles on Abbey Road, He played with Ray Charles, Little Richard, Sly and the Family Stone. He would tour with the Rolling Stones in the mid-70s. All this from a guy who taught himself to play the keys. It certainly helped his solo career that he played with George Harrison, Eric Clapton, and Bob Dylan at the concert for Bangladesh in 1971. It made his name more known to record buyers. His 1972 number 2 instrumental hit, Out of Space on his first solo album was used as the mid-show break music on American Bandstand for many years. When writing songs for his second solo record, he told his friend and collaborator Bruce Fisher, I've got a song, but it doesn't have a melody. And that line became this. That seems like a can't miss to me. Hey, you know the song that was number one before Will It Go Round in Circles in the summer of 1973? It was Give Me Love by former Beatle George Harrison. This song was already number one in some local markets by then. This is kind of random, but it does give you an idea. It was already number one in Wilmington, Delaware, of all places, on June 16th on WAMS, which was a pop station, not an R&B station. Will It Go Round in Circles stayed at the number one spot for two weeks. And oh, by the way, playing guitar and bass on this record, the Brothers Johnson, who will have their own hits to come in the 70s, uh, I'll Be Good to You, will be up first in 1976. Will It Go Round in Circles is kind of, uh, to me, just this... Joyful Jam, and it was also part of the block of R&B slash funk slash soul. However, they wanted to classify it records at the bottom of the top forty, and that was what was problematic for some of the radio stations. But look at what you would have missed if you had made this arbitrary decision to cut it out because, well, honestly, the artist is black. Even though, to me, this song is as rock and roll as any in the top 10 that summer. I don't know if any affiliates that um, played American Top 40 actually did cut out any songs based on the genre, but I am definitely glad that American Top 40 did not. Whenever Casey Kasem mentioned Elvis Presley, it was generally with a certain reverence that I think was due to the king of rock and roll. In July 1977, Elvis released what would be the final album of his lifetime, Moody Blue. Many albums will come later than that. Some of the recordings for that album were about four years old by then, before that rather notorious recording session in the so-called Jungle Room at Graceland in October 1976, and that is the recording session that produced the final hit single for Elvis, Way Down. The Jungle Room is really just the den off the kitchen. Elvis never called it that. I think it got the name Jungle Room sometime in the 80s, And it was converted into a recording studio uh, because RCA, his record label at that time, hoped that it would entice Elvis to actually record something. Of course, the Elvis of the mid to late 70s is the version of Elvis that is mocked. It is the Elvis that was overweight, anxious, on the verge of financial ruin because he wouldn't stop spending money. And it was the Elvis that was dependent on prescription drugs, that were readily supplied by Dr. Nick. I think it is safe to say that the recording session that produced Way Down was a bit of a disaster. Elvis uh, could not stay focused on the music. He would disappear upstairs. Uh, he would then come back downstairs. Uh, at one point, he insisted that everyone go and test out a new fleet of motorcycles that were delivered. At another time, uh, he came downstairs with the machine gun and kind of sort of playfully threatened to blow up the speakers. With all that being said, it is somewhat of a miracle that Way Down is as good as it is. I'm not suggesting that this is his best work. Um, Does this have the same energy as Heartbreak Hotel or Don't Be Cruel, or even Suspicious Minds? No, it doesn't. But then again, we are comparing Elvis to Elvis, which is kind of a high standard. It's a fairly polished single with this uh, actually kind of really nice, deep, bass vocal provided by gospel legend J.D. Sumner. In 2016, the Jungle Room recording session outtakes were released, and it's an interesting listen because you can hear Elvis banter a little bit with his band. Through all of the pain that this man was in, some of it self-inflicted and some of it not, you'll not convince me that he did not still care about his music. On this record, I do not hear a man mailing it in. With Way Down, I hear a more mature Elvis in a song that has a bit of the country-politan, country-pop mix that was popular in the 70s. This is a bit of Way Down, the 134th single from Elvis Presley. (laughs) ¶¶ way down a few times uh, in the past few weeks getting ready for this episode. And I can tell you way down is a bit of an earworm. It's really hard uh, to get that out of your head once it's stuck in there. It was a number one country hit. It made it to number 31 on the Billboard Top 40 for the week ending August sixth, 1977. I happen to be listening to a classic episode of American Top 40 from that week, and Kasem mentioned how devoted Elvis's fans were, which we, we know, uh, how far they would travel, how much they would spend to go see him. And then 10 days later, Elvis was gone. When Elvis died, Casey paid tribute to him and offered this to his listeners.
1: This is Casey Kasem on American Top 40. AT40 originates in Hollywood, and our countdown continues. And now I have the most important individual of the rock era. The man who broke open the dam that flooded the world with rock and roll. the polite country boy from Tupelo, Mississippi who drove a delivery truck for a living until Colonel Tom Parker discovered that Elvis Presley was one of the most saleable entertainment talents of the century. And until he died, August 16, 1977, Elvis did justice to that image. Ranking 21st among the 40 top recording acts of the 70s, Elvis was the first of them to hit the charts way back in 1956. One of the most memorable of his hits in this decade came in 1970, The Wonder of You.
0: Of course, Tom Parker didn't discover Elvis. He did discover how much money could be made from Elvis, uh, but Sam Phillips, more accurately, the secretary who worked for Sam Phillips at Sun Records, actually, discovered elvis but nonetheless this is a heartfelt tribute way down was on the way out of the billboard hot 100 when elvis died and then after his death the song reversed course and made it back up all the way to number 18 on the hot 100 some changes came to american top 40 in 1978 one was adding a full hour making it a four hour show Uh, That became necessary as singles became longer. The era of the two-minute, 30-second, or three-minute single was over. That meant songs had to be edited for length, which kind of defeats the purpose of the show. The other change to the show was adding in what became one of the highlights of the show, the long-distance dedication. These would really get you sometimes. Dedications to summer flings, parents, pets exchange students, you name it. There was a wide array of these dedications. And the songs did not need to be current necessarily, so it was a good opportunity to hear some well-placed oldies or songs that fell off the charts a couple of years prior, but they did need to be hits. The very first song that was used as a long-distance dedication was a song by Neil Diamond, and it is about a guy losing his virginity to a woman who was twice his age, which sounds like the perfect dedication song. Neil Diamond was called by some the Jewish Elvis because of his looks and because of his stage persona. A major difference between Neil Diamond and Elvis is that Diamond is a songwriter and Elvis was never that. Neil Diamond was at the top of his game in the late 70s. The album I'm Glad You're Here With Me Tonight was his 11th, and it was the second in a row that got him a TV special to go with it because, really, he was such a great showman. Even if Sweet Caroline and Cherry Cherry are not your speed musically, it's really hard to deny that the man could put on a show. It was also tempting to watch the TV special because Diamond had stayed off of the stage for four years between 1972 and 76. He actually said he tried to learn a little something from Elvis and the Beatles, he said. I think if you're out in front of the public too much, if you're too recognized, too well-known, you do, in a sense, become public property. I always wanted to be my own man. Like many of his songs, Desiree is about a woman, and it has a catchy chorus, which makes it perfect for karaoke or some other type of sing-along. It also, apparently, was exactly the message that James from Louisiana wanted his Desiree to hear.
1: American Top 40 This is Casey Kasem on AT40 in Hollywood, and now I want to read you a letter from a teenage boy in Louisiana who wants us to dedicate a song to his sweetheart. His first name is James, and it goes, Dear Casey, I live in a small town. And about ten months ago, I fell in love with a girl named Desiree. This was the first time I'd ever heard the name. But a week after we met, Desiree had to move to Germany with her family because her father is in the army and that's where they sent him. It was a really sad experience for the both of us. Then, not long after she left, a song called Desiree came out where Neil Diamond sings about things similar to our relationship. Like, I knew I could only have her till the morning light. And she continues on like the words of a song. And when that song came out, I felt it was written for me, which I know is not true, but I like to believe it. Casey, to me, that song will always mean something special. If you could play Neil Diamond's Desiree on American Top 40, maybe my Desiree in Germany will hear it and know it's for her. Sincerely, James. Well, James, you got it. Here's your long-distance dedication. June, on that summer's day, when I became a man at the hands of a girl almost twice my age, and she came to me just like the morning sun.
0: Desiree heard that. Every week we would get stories like that starting in 1978. Uh, That song made it to number 16. Not too bad for an era that was dominated by disco. Oh, by the way, that album also has a solo version of You Don't Bring Me Flowers. The next year, Neil Diamond would release a duet of that song with Barbara Streisand that would make it all the way to number one. As American Top 40 closed out the 70s and looked ahead to the 80s, and Casey Kasem looked back at all the music that he had profiled on his show, the legends, Janis Joplin, the Beatles, Together and Not, The Who, The Rolling Stones, Elton John, Fleetwood Mac, through the countrypolitan phase with the likes of Glenn Campbell, through the disco era with the Bee Gees, Donna Summer, the singer-songwriters like Patti Smith and Joni Mitchell and Jackson Brown, I do have to wonder what he thought when the very last song to be played on American Top 40 in the 70s, as we look ahead to the 80s, turned out to be a song about a guy who was tired of his lady and took out a personal ad. Our guy was actually responding to an ad. And he said in his, Yes, I like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. I'm not much into health food. I am into champagne. The woman who answers his ad and meets up with him is, of course, his lady because she had grown tired of him, too. Rupert Holmes will forever be most remembered for Escape the Pina Colada song. And I don't think he's too happy about it. He, for example, also wrote the musical, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. He's won Emmys, he's won Tony's. He's written a novel that was made into a movie, but he will always be the piña colada song guy. The song was originally just called Escape, but when people went into the record shops to request the piña colada song, and there was no record called the piña colada song, logic dictates that you make it the piña colada song. Holmes wrote the song because he needed something kind of upbeat because he had a record full of ballads. He had the music already, which is quite repetitive, so he needed the lyrics to be the focal point. He was running out of money, and he was running out of time, and he was trying all kinds of lyrics, uh, things like this. That's the law of the jungle in the school of the street. You get out of the kitchen if you can't take the heat. Not only is that just bad, he also said that it sounds like a Billy Joel song. Then he tried something with Cruel to be Kind, but nope, Nick Lowe has a song with that title. So as sometimes happens with writers, he was inspired by something that just happened to be laying nearby. In this case, it was a copy of the Village Voice and the personal ads. He wondered what would happen if I answered one, and he thought to himself, it would probably be my wife who wrote it, and the rest is history. (coughs) number one song of the 70s, making it there on December 22nd, 1979, and staying there for three weeks to take us into the 1980s. That song was everywhere. You could not go anywhere without hearing that song. I think that maybe what made this song work was the fact that Rupert Holmes, while a very talented man, is not that great of a singer. I mean, if somebody with real pipes sang this, like if Neil Diamond sang it, it just wouldn't work, but Holmes sounds like a guy who would respond to a personal ad and cheat on his old lady rather than just breaking it off with her. Well, she was doing the same thing, but at least they got together, right? So it, it works out in the end. Uh, as we look ahead to the 80s, the music changes, and so does American Top 40. To find out more about that, be sure to listen to part two of this episode next month on For the Record, the 80s. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. You can also find all of my sources for this episode on FTR70.com. If you like what you hear, please leave a kind review or just tell someone about it. That's all for now. Bye, everyone.